What up, guys? Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Max McCoy, and this is Looking Up. I'm super excited because this is episode 100 of Looking Up. My podcast used to be called the Mind Body Hoops Podcast. We've come so far. I started this as like a sports performance podcast, a way to answer people's questions more elaborately, and then it evolved, and I continued to follow my passions and excitements. This podcast started as a whisper, an intuitive whisper, something deep within me knew that I should start a podcast, that that was the most authentic way for me to continue my content creation journey, that it would open a lot of doors for me, and man, it has. And I was so scared to start a podcast. I hated my voice. I hated speaking. I was, I'm, I've was. i always been a little introverted and shy, and it just was so counterintuitive to who I thought I was, and this was just an ego-shattering, scary process. Um, and almost over almost three years later, here I am at episode 100. Um, I haven't been podcasting as regularly as I want to, but still, I am very proud of, you know, almost doing like 80 interviews and being at episode 100. It feels very exciting. If you're listening to this, if you listen to my podcast, I just want to say thank you for being here. This is such a rewarding process for me to be able to show up talk about ideas that I'm working through, talk to experts in their fields, and to be able to share this information with even just one of you guys and to have it somewhat impact your life. It's a very interesting and beautiful feeling. Like To be able to do something that feels so fun and authentic and aligned for me and for it to be able to help you even in the slightest of ways, that is a special feeling. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for supporting Looking Up, and happy episode 100. So in lieu of episode 100, and since I started this podcast, doing something I was fearful of, like I was scared to start the podcast. It took me like, I recorded an episode, and I didn't do anything with it, and it wasn't until like six months later that I actually released it. Um, And so in lieu of episode 100, I want to once again invite myself to do something that scares me but something that I have felt called to do, and that is share my story and kind of how I got to sharing this kind of information, becoming passionate about this information, um, talking about the ideas that I do. You know, I've had a good number of you guys listening ask me, like, what is your story, Max? Like, we know a little bit about you, but could you go in depth? And I've never done that before. And I didn't really realize that I was resistant to it. I kind of just felt like, oh, yeah, I will do that eventually. I just don't have time. And, you know, I think if I'm being honest with myself, I was avoiding the responsibility of telling my own story, partly because I didn't know where to start. And secondly, because looking back on your history can be a little uncomfortable. And while there are parts of my history that I feel very comfortable talking about, there are other parts that I don't. And... I got honest with myself and I I thought about some of my favorite content creators and the people that have impacted my life the most. And all of them have been very honest. And what I love about them most is usually some aspect of their story that I relate with. And as much as I like to talk about big picture ideas, abstract ideas, I feel like I'm not doing my message and my work 
proper service if I'm not honest about my story and where I come from because humans learn from story. And so I'm going to share my story. And perhaps you're just curious and want to hear about it. Perhaps there is parts of my story that resonate with yours and that you can learn from. Maybe you can learn from my mistakes, my takeaways. But also, and maybe most importantly, you know, in preparing for this podcast, I'm kind of going to just go off the cuff, by the way. I'm not going to follow a script or anything. I want to keep this very real. But in preparing for this, I kind of just journaled to myself my story. And what I thought would just be some bullet points, what I thought would just be a quick exercise, ended up being like two full hours of freehand writing my story to myself. And it was one of the most healing processes I've done in a very long time. It left me feeling more compassionate, more understanding to, to past max. It made me feel more empowered. It made me feel more excited to do the work that I'm doing. Um, and it just felt like an, a healing process. And this almost re- reminds me why journaling is so impactful journaling is literally medicine and if you can articulate to yourself parts of yourself and parts of your story that are hard to talk about you are literally healing and there's so much data that goes into this around expressive writing and how it can heal things like trauma and that was the experience for me so this is a podcast for you guys but it's also for me it feels very healing to be able to reflect and talk on my story in a way that I never have before. And I hope this kind of sets the precedent for the direction that I continue to go. We're 100 episodes deep and I plan to get to episode 200. Um, And so thank you for being here. And this episode will be my story and the medicine that I seemingly found, the medicine that I needed. Uh, and, And we'll wrap up with an announcement at the end of this podcast that I'm very excited about. And I guess one last preface is I don't know how long this podcast will go. I want to be concise as possible, but I also want to be intentional and thorough with my story. Um, And then if I don't feel like if it's a little all over the place at times, I apologize. Again, I felt called to do this off of a script and just from the heart. So, you know, it might be a little all over the place at times, but I'll try my best to keep this linear. So here we go. My story the medicine I found. Um, I'm going to start with my family. You know, I come from a dysfunctional family as we all seemingly do. But within that dysfunctional family, I was very blessed as a kid. Um, I grew up, you know, loving sports and being really good at sports right away. And I played all of the sports and I got a lot of attention for being good at sports. And so I was you know, pretty blessed as a kid. Like I had a ton of friends because I played every sport. I had kids on my street. I was always playing outside, Um, born and raised in Southern California. So I was a sport player, but I was also like a skater, snowboarder. Um, I loved hiking. Like I was always outside, always playing. And my family, um, though we'll get into why it was dysfunctional, but like My family was a tight unit. You know, my parents are still together to this day. We were pretty well off. So anything we needed, we had and then and then some. So like financially, we were set, you know, so I look back and I was like, I had it. I had it really good. Everybody in my family was kind of artists. My mom was an awesome artist and musician. My sister, my brother, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, everybody had their artistic outlet. And I thought that was normal. And so I naturally found an artistic outlet 
I was a skater, so I looked up to all these skaters. I also loved watching movies, so I loved like comedians and the the jackass videos and the movies they used to put out. Those were like my idols growing up. So I would make jackass movies with my friends. I would make skate videos with my friends. And back in the day when there were cassette tapes, it was really fucking hard to get your videos edited. So the second that you could edit digitally, I was obsessed because it, for my whole life, I couldn't edit my videos. I would just film and then that would be it. So my first art, my first like love, my creative passion was just making videos with my friends. I would, um, we'd make movies, we'd title them, we'd put them in DVDs, we'd have premieres at my house. Uh, I'd have my younger brothers try to sell our DVDs at school. Like I was obsessed with that shit. And so my childhood was so solid. I look back and I'm just like, man, I had it so good. I played a ton of basketball as well growing up. I played all the sports, but like I'd say mid-middle school, I started getting really serious about basketball because I was really good at it. And I think I was only good at it because I was obsessive about it. I was I was obsessive about making videos and then I became obsessive about basketball. Like whatever I liked, I just liked to do it all the time. And so I started getting really good at basketball. I got put into like travel teams. Um, me and my friends were all on the same team and we would play basketball like every weekend we were in a tournament and it was awesome, but it was also kind of like a job, you know, like we didn't really have our weekends. We were playing basketball every weekend from like seventh grade on. And so when I got to high school, by the time I got to high school, I was already getting a lot of attention for basketball and people were like, you are really good. And, you know, whether it was the faculty or the people um, or friends or even my parents, just everybody was telling me, you're really good you are going to be one of the best players to ever play at this school. And that felt like a lot of pressure, but it was also kind of exciting. I was like, oh, I didn't know I was that good. Cool. And so I was a freshman on varsity, which was a pretty big deal. And that's when things, I would say, started to get a little weird. I had I was just a young 14-year-old guy who was just so used to just fucking off and doing whatever I wanted. And now things started to get serious, like you are really good at basketball. Like, and they started handing me like this future they painted for me. Like you might be the best player that ever played here. And so a lot of pressure on like what I could become. And I, a lot of, a lot of insight as to what my potential was. And so, you know, that's pressure for a 14 year old boy. Meanwhile, my family life was tough. Um, my younger brother <clears throat> has, dealt with very extreme mood dis- mood disorders and drug addictions from like the age since like he was 14 it started. And so he's only a year younger than me and so he was, you know, like my best friend growing up and then for that to go down for years and years and years was very took a toll on me. Um and so while my family life was beautiful and I'm blessed in so many ways, that was definitely an undeniable thing that made it very hard. My parents felt very helpless. Um, my older sister also dealt with depression. My younger brother was just seemed like a mess. My parents felt helpless. I was often looked at as like, they would say just like, thank God for you, Max. Like, thank God you're normal. Thank God that you keep your shit together, that we don't have to worry about you. And while their intentions were so loving and pure, <clears throat> that put a lot of pressure on me to keep it all together all the time. <laughs> and so I had a lot of pressure on me from a young age. Uh, I had a lot of pressure on my family structure to just be the kind of the neutralizer. I was almost like the third parent to my brother because my parents felt helpless. 
So they would often ask me for help. Like, can you help us help your brother? And I often couldn't, but I would try so hard to help him. And I would psychoanalyze him. And, uh, you know, I would try to coach him. My mom is a licensed therapist and a a psychologist. So she's like in the mental world, you know, she's trained to do stuff like this. And she felt helpless. And she would always label like my sister and my brother as depressed or anxious. She'd always throw like clinical labels on them as if, you know, they were born this way. She would call it a chemical imbalance and that all they likely need is some medication and fix them up and then be fine. And of course that never worked. And so from her clinical standpoint, there was nothing she could do. And I always kind of had the intuitive feel that there was more to this than just a birth defect. There was more to this than just a chemical imbalance. Like it didn't rub me the right way to just say, yeah, they were born like this. I didn't really feel like that. And so I took that as like, what could I do to figure this out? How could I figure out my sick brother? How could I help him? And I would try everything. And I learned a lot about the mental condition through trying to study my sick brother. And no matter how hard I tried, things didn't really work. He was in and out of rehabs my entire like high school life and you know, continued to have very violent mood swings and it was just a mess. And so back home life was good, but then it would could blow up at any minute. And so there was a lot of pressure. And again, I, I was looked at as the, the guy who had it all together. I was the young basketball star from 14 on. And, you know, so my parents looked at me with this admiration, like, thank you for being you. And so that was a lot of pressure. I, di- I didn't really feel like I could be anything but that. And then at school, I was getting all the attention from uh, my friends, the faculty, teachers, even the principal telling me, you guys are the best team we've ever seen. We're so grateful. You're finally turning our school around. And I loved that. I loved that intention, uh, attention because I loved being good at basketball. Um, but it also, again, added more pressure that I needed to live up to this potential. I needed to become the player everybody thinks I am. And so I channeled all this energy into being really fucking good at basketball. Everything else got shut out of my life. Like no, cre- no more videos, no more <clears throat> playfulness. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to channel my Kobe mentality and I'm going to work harder than anybody's ever worked. I'm going to become the best player ever. And I channeled everything into that. And it was helpful. I became a really good basketball player. Um, you know, it's, it's obviously really healthy to work out your stress or anger out in a physical way. It's, it's a healthy thing. Um, but looking back, I could just see like it was all rooted from fear. My, I worked really hard because I was scared that I wouldn't live up to the expectations that everybody had for me. I was scared to let my parents down, so I kept it all in. I was scared to let my school down or my friends down. I was scared to not be what people told us we could be. We could be the best team that this school ever saw. I could be the best player this school has ever seen. And I was scared to drop that responsibility. And so I held a lot of weight and pressure put on myself. And so as you can imagine, I got a lot of attention for being a good basketball player. Uh, I had a lot of friends because I was you know, in the sports world. And I naturally like got attention from girls. And I remember, you know, I, I, I look back and I can see I've always been this kind of shy, introverted, soft-spoken person. 
I guess if you're listening to this podcast, it's not so obvious because I have a podcast, but like I have always been that. And only in retrospect can I realize that. But, you know, so being good at basketball, being kind of getting a lot of attention from, from that, girls started to gravitate to me just a little bit. And that added pressure to Little Max too because it was like they thought I was this one person and I feel like I'm not that person, but okay, I'll become that person. And so that really sets up kind of my approach to high school. I was trying to become what I thought everybody wanted me to be. I was the peacemaker in my home, the third parent. I was the basketball star. And I was trying to be like that jock, cool guy for all the girls that I thought they wanted me to be. And I got really good at compartmentalizing myself into that. Everything else was shoved to the side. And that lasted for a little bit, but it started to, that pressure started to build up and come out in unhealthy ways. Around the age of like, honestly, since I was a freshman in high school, maybe even just a little earlier, I started drinking on the weekends with my friends, with teammates, and it was kind of looked at, I got away with everything because my family was like, you know, you're the basketball star, you're the you're the good student who just has a couple beers on the weekend, that's cool, who doesn't? And so because that was the way I was perceived, I got to get away with everything. And so I was honestly for like four years drinking super heavily on the weekends with my friends and just, you know, partying to an extent that like I knew most people weren't partying, but I just kind of, my motto became like work hard, play hard. I had no other outlet for all this pressure I was feeling than through partying. And when I was partying, I just began to love it because it gave me this outlet to be someone else. Uh, As the introverted shy kid, it made me more social. I was able to talk to girls more comfortably. And so that became like this hidden passion of mine. I began to pour a lot of fucking energy into partying. Like me and my friends, uh, and, and like granted, we had a lot of fun, of course, but like it was to an extent that probably wasn't healthy it definitely wasn't healthy we would party every weekend from like friday to sunday you know as like six 14 15 16 17 18 year old guys you know just beating up our bodies and then in the summer or spring breaks we'd often go like weeks straight you know binge drinking we would use our fake ids we would steal alcohol if we had to we would always be the guys getting everybody else really drunk so that they can meet our level. Like it was just the extent of the partying was pretty ridiculous. Um, and that was my outlet. That was like my hobby. That was, that was my world. And it felt like this double life I was living because at school I could do no wrong at home. I could do no wrong. I kept it all together. I was still excelling in basketball because I was working myself to the bone. And the only way I could escape all of that was through partying. And the partying progressively got more intense. We constantly needed more alcohol, you know, and I started doing a lot of shit that I'm ashamed of. And I started doing just treating girls the wrong way. And I was a fucking douchebag. And I had to live with for years, a lot of shame around the shit I did in this period. And I look back and I can have compassion, but it was a tough couple of years after that because I had to live with the shit I did in high school, partying. Just I didn't like do anything ter- I, not, like nothing horrible, but like I have morals and I consider myself a good person. And I could see I was like, man, that wasn't Max. And uh, 
you know, it was a result of all this pressure I felt and I just had to release it and it would come out in very toxic ways. So I graduated high school um, and I promise this story that I'm telling will like fill, it will make sense, you know, why I'm telling, I'm not just venting, you know, I, this does relate to the work I do now. Um, and so I graduated college. <clears throat> I decided to play basketball at a D3 school in Boston. I was like a, I was like a low tier D1. I was admit, I was definitely a D2 player and I chose to play division three basketball in a small school in Boston because truthfully I wanted to keep partying. I wanted to keep living my life. I wanted to keep having fun. I wanted to keep chasing girls and I figured if I go D3, I can still be the man, I could still be the star, and I won't have to work that hard, and I can still have a lot of fun. And so I went to Boston, <clears throat> went to college there, had a great, made some really great friends, and, uh, but you know, as you can imagine, this cycle continued. I had all this pressure on myself, I was the star freshman player, I had these big shoes to fill, I was like starting right away, and so just more basketball pressure on me, and then... Um, luckily the family pressure wasn't there, but the cycle continued. I continued to party very hard. I broke my ankle one of the first games of the season. And so I sat out the rest of the season. And though at the time I thought this was the worst thing that could possibly happen to me, I look back and I'm just so grateful because it was the first time that I had, you know, like six months straight without the game, without the pressure of, putting in like three hours of work and on top of practices. Like I really reveled and marveled in the freedom I had for the first time since I was like 14. I started paying attention in school. I remember getting a good grade, like, you know, I always got pretty good grades, but I started actually paying attention, not just getting by. And I remember being like, wow, I like I'm taking away things from school. This is a first. I remember having more time to invest in little friendships that, um, and a couple girlfriends in particular, they weren't like girls I was intimate with, but girls that were just friends. And <clears throat> through them, I remember finding parts of myself that I hadn't had, I hadn't touched in so long. They had started to pull out like this creative spiritual side of myself that was so foreign to me at the time. And if I could paint a picture of like who I was at that time around like 19 years old, I was just the most sportsy, jockey like non-spiritual, non-emotional type person. Like all of that just got pushed to the side because it wasn't basketball. If it wasn't basketball, it was pointless to me. And so this time away from the game, as you could imagine, was transformative. And as I started to heal my ankle, I started playing again with the team. The season was over by this point. And I decided I didn't really love basketball anymore. And um, I had like some long talks with my mom, who's you know, a great listener because of her therapy background. And she helped me see that, you know, I was kind of, I was kind of done. And the, the cool thing with basketball, if any of my basketball audience is listening, when you stop playing basketball, it's not like you stop playing basketball forever. Like you can play pickup basketball whenever you want. And so that, that comforted me. And I decided to end my competitive basketball career. I decided also if I'm not going to play basketball, it doesn't really make sense for me to be living here in Boston. It was also very cold. So I moved back to sunny California, where I'm from, and I decided I wanted to go to San Diego State University. I wanted to be a normal kid. I wanted to have fun without the pressure of basketball for the first time. 
I moved to San Diego and I went from being the man at my school, being one of the basketball guys to having a ton of friends to having like my teammates who were like brothers to living with roommates. And I moved to San Diego. I didn't know anybody and I didn't know how to fit in and I didn't know how to integrate with people. And I felt like an outsider for like six months. I, I knew nobody. And so during this time, you know, it was, it was really hard because I had just transitioned from basketball and I had also moved somewhere where I knew nobody. And when you transition out of a sport that has been your entire identity and life for like 10 plus years, it is, it is very hard because one, your schedule is so different. You're not used to having all this free time, but two, it's like your whole source of identity and pride is now gone. Everything that made me, me was basketball. And now that wasn't in my life. And though I was first excited about the freedom I was going to experience that, that soon wore off that excitement for freedom. And it soon became like, what the fuck am I doing with myself? I don't know who I am anymore. And that compounded with no friends or community or anything to do really besides go to school. I was just super lost. And as happens with those dark, low periods, there's usually some gifts that come out of it. And mine was, I started to read books. I became like, okay, if I'm not playing basketball anymore, and when I played basketball, I was really good at studying people I wanted to be like, like Steve Nash and Kobe Bryant. I'm not playing basketball anymore, I thought. So who can I study that I might want to be like? And I I remember I studied Steve Jobs because I thought, you know, maybe I want to start a business one day. And Steve Jobs, for a lot of people, is this mythical, creative entrepreneur figure, this innovator. So I started reading about him, just articles. And I read that, you know, he really liked to study Buddhism. And so I was like, that's interesting. And so I bought my first Buddhism book. And I read it front to back. And I remember just being so mind blown about how this very basic Buddhist book talked about things like the mind and mindfulness and how to operate an anxious mind. And I was feeling so anxious at the time. And it just, this book spoke to my experience of feeling like lost and anxious and it, and it addressed it. And I never read anything or learned anything that talked about the mind the way this Buddhist book did. And I was like, why the fuck was I never taught this? Why the fuck wasn't I taught how to meditate or breathe or come back to the present? This seems like how to be a human 101. And so I started to meditate. I started to take the advice from the book and I could feel, I felt different than I had ever felt before. I had never felt like composed in my own mind. It was almost like the pressure I kept in my shoulders for so long began to soften just a little bit. Like my shoulders dropped. I was breathing a little more deeply. And so a lot of really positive changes came out of this like semester of being friendless. I started reading books on Buddhism. I started meditating. I still didn't have any friends, but I was playing pickup basketball at the gym on campus. And eventually one guy in particular started to gravitate to me because I was pretty good at basketball. And he's like, dude, you're really good. You should come you know, to our party tonight. And I went and it was a frat house. And I was like, damn, this is sick. Like, you guys are almost like teammates, but instead of teammates, you're just, you just party together and live together. This is pretty cool. And so I would go to their house every once in a while and, and party with them. And eventually he asked me to move in and, you know, I didn't have any friends. So I was like, dude, I finally have friends. This is incredible. And so I moved into a frat house 
And it's looking back, I laugh because it's like just as I was scratching the surface into this new world, it's like my old world pulled me right back in. And once again, I felt the pressure because these guys didn't really know me. They knew me as the guy who was really good at basketball and they knew me as like this guy that could probably get girls with and they knew me as this agreeable guy because I was agreeable. I was just the, the guy who would smile and nod and just say, yeah, 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 to like whatever you say because I didn't want you to dislike me. I was so scared of being rejected. I was so scared of being friendless. So I would just be agreeable. I would mold myself to any environment I was in just to fit in. And this led to, once again, I feel pressure to be exactly who these frat guys think I am. And so the cycle continued. I became even more of a fratty douchebag. I became, you know, all I did was wait, weight lift, go to class, eat, talk shit with my friends, party, and try to get girls. That's it. And at San Diego State, like, at a big college school, the partying took just another level. Like, my life became from Thursday night to Sunday. I, I was either drunk or I was recovering from a hangover. And when we would recover from a hangover, we would just smoke weed and we would eat burritos and watch TV and laugh about the night before and then we'd do it all again. And for a, f- a couple months, like, that was super fun. And like, I was like, man, I'm really doing this college thing. This is like what college is all about. Right. But then it started just to become sad. Um, I mean, everything we did was revolving around partying. Like we even got a puppy for the house because we were super hungover one morning eating McDonald's and we were like, you know, it would be cool if we had a puppy. And also that puppy would probably help us get girls. And so we had a puppy. There was nine guys in a frat house and a puppy and nobody took care of the puppy we just said like he'll figure it out and so he was really nobody's dog and there was just like this husky puppy living with us while we threw parties in the house while we always had tons of drunk people in the house like it was a mess and I remember I I remember I knew it was bad when a classmate asked me and I was probably like high in class they're like so what do you do for fun and I really like stopped and I thought about it And I had no answer because literally all I did was go to class, often high or on Adderall. And then I would go to the gym so that I could look good for the girls. And then we would party like that was my life or I'd be hungover like that was my life. And I remember just feeling a little ashamed. And it it was like, you know, you would think you'd be more mindful, but I wasn't. And it took that person asking that question for me to be like, damn, like I literally don't do anything. And so... You know, that was my semester living with this frat house and something ended up happening with my credits where I was going to transfer. I I didn't think I could stay and go to San Diego State. I was going to transfer to UC Santa Cruz, which was a pretty hippie and open-minded and liberal arts college. And I was sad to leave my friends. I was sad to leave the puppy, but it felt like a good opportunity to start fresh. I went home that summer and lived with my parents and started smoking a bunch of weed with my um, my high school friends. And we were hiking a ton. And, you know, looking back, I can see that weed was actually pretty helpful for me because I spent so much of my life living with this pressure. I, I lived so much within that, like, fratty, you know, jock lifestyle, that masculine 
um, that I never gave any interest into like my other parts of myself. I kind of shoved them to the side because they weren't important in my eyes. And I never smoked weed in high school because I was scared I'd turn out like my brother who was addicted to drugs. Um, so it was always just drinking for me. But when I started to smoke weed, like mid-college, and especially during the summer back home, I started hiking more, appreciating nature more, uh, listening to music more, and I could feel parts of myself opening up. And since I was going to go to Santa Cruz, or so I thought, I thought, you know, this might be a good time to explore new parts of myself, because I could, I kind of intuitively know, knew that there were other parts of myself. And um that summer, I had my first psychedelic experience with some of my close friends. We did it in a super safe setting. We had uh, one of our friends be sober and guide us through it and watch us. And we had you know, a beautiful backyard. We did it in nature. And that first psychedelic experience for me was of the most important days of my life. Like, if I was living in black and white before that, I, that was the day I saw color. It was the day that reminded me of who I actually was. It was the day that I had this sense of like, oh yeah, that's who I am. And and look who I've been trying to be. How sad. And I've since done a lot of work with psychedelic medicines and research on it. And it's a topic for another day, but it is and was for me just such a healthy experience, especially when done mindfully. Um, and luckily during that time and during that summer, I'd spent a lot of time in nature and I'd spent some time meditating and I was returning to those Buddhism books. And so the, by, by the time I took that psychedelic, I was in a pretty good headspace and I was really able to receive the medicine that is psychedelics. And it's like, I like to put it this way. It's like I was living in this dark room of the house and I thought it was the only room that existed. And that psychedelic experience opened up a door for me and, and let me see to the other side it, let, it showed me what was possible. I also felt what Michael Pollan puts in his book as what many people experience with their first time taking psychedelics. Michael Pollan, uh, the author of How to Change Your Mind, he wrote it as, it's a lot of people's first direct experience with God. And that's what I felt. My first direct experience with God. I grew up, like I said, in a well-off family a very materialist home, and my parents were atheists because, um, you know, my dad just never really gravitated to church, and then my mom's side of the family was actually Jewish, and so they went through the Holocaust and all these crazy things that led my mom's mom to say, like, there is no God for sure. And so my mom and my dad, they weren't necessarily anti-religion, but they were kind of just like, yeah, you know, like, just figure it out yourself. And we never were really connected to anything spiritually growing up. Um, and so, you know, I wasn't like an atheist, but I, I just, you know, I was like, it is what it is. I just, you know, we're just humans and that's it. You know, that's kind of pointless. And that first psychedelic experience for me was the first time I felt a part of nature. I felt in communion with something bigger. I looked at the trees and the hills in the distance and I was like, there is a creator. There is something. There is a, an intelligence here. I got to feel how alive everything was. And not to sound like a trippy hippie, but uh, yeah, I was just immersed in this like awe and this like remembering and this like, oh yeah. It wasn't, Michael Pollan also puts it like, it's not like a dream where you're like, oh, that was crazy. It's a lucid, clear happening with psychedelics. And that that's what I experienced. 
And so that really opened my mind to this whole new world. And then instead of going to UC Santa Cruz, like I thought, I got a letter in the mail from San Diego State and they said, don't worry, you're in. And so I took that first psychedelic trip and then literally three days later, I realized I'm going back to San Diego State. I go that week, I move back into the frat house and here I am now at this frat house feeling trapped in this party atmosphere but feeling like my mind had completely changed. I'd st- I had been reading that that summer. I had been hiking. I had been meditating, and I took psychedelics. And I came back to that same environment, a new person. And so the partying continued, even though this time I was a little more reluctant. I didn't want to party, but I felt so outcasted if I wouldn't that I just said yes more than I wanted to. And I got a job that summer to try to distract me from all the partying, to try to tell everybody, sorry, I'm busy, but any day I wasn't working, <clears throat> I was still engulfed in that culture, and I would come home, and no matter how late, and there would always be people in my house drunk, the house was always dirty, we had rats in the house, there was nine of us, you know, the puppy was there, but now the puppy was bigger, and when I came back that summer, that puppy had been essentially neglected, he had been left outside in the backyard all summer, He had ripped up all the furniture, and everybody just was like, yeah, that fucking dog sucks. He fucking doesn't listen. And I came back, just a different person, obviously, from the summer I had, and I looked at that dog, and I was like, man, you're just like me. Like, you're trapped here. And so I started training that motherfucking dog, and I started walking that dog, and I started taking care of that dog because... If we didn't, he would continue to run away the way he had. He kept running away. He got hit by a car. You know, he he just was being abused in a lot of ways. And so I took it on myself to save this dog. And so if you ever see a picture with my dog, his name is Wolfie. He's sitting here right next to me. He's a beautiful white husky with blue eyes. Me and him were all we had in, in San Diego in these last two years of college. I was still living in a frat house with frat guys still partying more than I wanted to, even though I tried to get away from it as much as I could. All I had was this dog and I would train him and I would care for him and we would hide out in our rooms together, getting away from the noise and the drunk people. It was during this time I could feel like the birth of my new self dying to come out, this spiritual, this like interested in reading more books because like I read this Buddhism book and it blew my mind. What else could I read that would blow my mind in a similar way? It was like I had never read before anything that made me interested and I finally had and it felt like this whole new world opened up to me. I started to find the words that I had for so long felt deep down probably but just didn't have the vocabulary to articulate them to myself. And I had finally had that. And so I had this part of myself that was dying to be born but yet I was living in this toxic environment And so I just kept checking the clock and my parents paid for college. So I had no excuse. I couldn't leave college, even though I felt like it wasn't helping me. I felt like I knew I was going to go an alternate path, but everybody just kept telling me like, this was the way, this was the way. And I studied economics. And so when I graduated, I looked for jobs that economics majors could get. And they were all like full-time work at insurance company or work for this broker or be a salesman. Like it was pretty limited. I had to work in the financial industry or be a salesman basically. And, uh, I felt lost. It felt like all my frat buddies and and rightfully so I didn't have the right friends, um, that 
showed me what else was possible. I was stuck in my little circle and I probably could have done a better job of reaching out to people, but I was this shy, introverted, insecure guy. And so I just stayed with what I had. And, you know, all my frat buddies felt pretty content with what they would do after graduation. And here I was without a fucking clue of what I would do, feeling like all these options just sucked. And, you know, the anxiousness and, you know, the pressure returned. Uh, I graduated, still don't know what I'm going to do. And so I decided I'm going to take some time and I'm going to nurture this other part of myself. I'm going to explore and discover. I wanted to find myself. So I decided to spend some time traveling. But actually, before I went traveling, I was just kind of living at my parents trying to figure out a plan. And I felt so anxious and depressed because I didn't know what to do. And all the options that were being given to me sounded so soul-sucking. And so I felt so stuck. And so I started to be a little depressed. And, you know, God bless her, but my mom... Um, with her clinical background, kind of said to me, you know, you're, you might be like your brother and sister. You might just be born this way. You might have a chemical imbalance. You might as well just go to the doctor and get checked out. And I didn't know any better. So I was like, okay, sounds good. Let's go. I don't want to be depressed anymore. And within five minutes, I was prescribed a very strong anti-anxiety and antidepressant medication within 10 minutes of being in the doctor's office. No exaggeration. I walked out with a strong prescription And so I started taking antidepressants. And then I started my travels. I was ready to go soul search. I was ready to find myself. And it was on, I started with a road trip with my, just me and my dog, just driving up the coast. We went to Oregon. We started camping. I was taking small little doses of LSD in the woods. I was uh, taking really long drives and listening to podcasts, really trying to just go go deep on these ideas that I started to be excited about because I was excited about the idea of learning information that I could apply to my life right away. I started finding people like Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus and uh, I had known of Tim Ferriss but I started going deeper into his work and my mind I mean I just spent every minute of this you know I was driving probably like 20 hours on this road trip at least and I was I spent every minute listening to podcasts and I just started expanding my mind and just being like okay this is what's possible and and really adding meaning to everything I had just been through and I could see now why I had been so depressed I could see why I felt so stuck like this is not the conditions that suit the human spirit I started getting the vocabulary my heart was looking for to articulate the things I had been through the pressure I had felt it was also during this time that I found like Kelly Brogan's work, who's a an awesome educator in the space of mental health. I heard her on Joe Rogan's podcast, and she talked about how antidepressants are just a Band-Aid. They are a numbing agent that keep you blinded to your symptoms. They don't help anything. They just kind of numb your symptoms, and that they, if I continue to take these antidepressants that I was on, there would be no end game like I would be forced to take these forever if I don't get off of them and my brain would become dependent on them to make certain chemicals and I was so grateful that I found that podcast in such synchronistic timing and I got off my antidepressants it was during this time I was listening to so many podcasts I was reading books reading spiritual books I started with like the spiritual world first for sure I really wanted to ask the big questions like why am I here what am I doing what is, you know, a spirit? What is a soul? Like all these big questions that I felt like, you know, psychedelics kind of opened the door for me, but then the door closed when I got sober, obviously. And so 
I was really curious of like, what else is behind this door? Like, how could I live more in this connected, aligned, happy, peaceful, trusting state more often? Finished my road trip. It was amazing. And then I went to Europe. I took, uh, it was supposed to be just a one month trip to see some of the European cities, you know, get that travel bug out of my system before I come home and enter the workforce. Got to Europe and just a new part of me was unlocked. I love the notion that novel places create novel thoughts. When you're in a new place with a new language, with new types of people, you can't help but think in new ways. And you really get to know yourself because so many of us only know ourselves in the context of where we always are. And being in a new country, I got to see all the things that I consider normal. And I got to realize like, oh, that's that's only normal because of where I'm from and who I'm around. Like that's not actually normal. And so where I was feeling like I didn't have any options in my life, like there was only this small sliver of things I could do with my career, for, for example, I got to see when I went across the world that people laughed at the way that Americans work 40 to 60 hour work weeks. And they laughed at how stressed we were and they laughed at how little balance we had. And I got to be like, yeah, like fuck that. <laughs> and I really got to question what does normal mean for me and what kind of life do I want to live? And I got to continue to explore. I skipped my return flight home and ended up staying an extra two months in Spain. I wanted to really learn Spanish. I became obsessed with Spanish and I just tried to talk to as many people as I could. I was racking up credit card debt like no other, but I saw it as such a worthwhile investment. I felt like I was getting the education that I had always craved. I felt like I was becoming myself. It was during this time in Spain, I had an apartment. I was living like a very awesome, beautiful Spain life. I was meeting friends. I was learning Spanish really fast. I was meditating and so much good was happening that I didn't want to forget anything. I didn't want to forget the details of all the magic that was happening. And so at the end of the day, I would sit down and I had this journal that my sister had got me and I started writing, you know, like what had happened that day. Like here are the details that happened so that future Max doesn't forget. And while it started with just writing down what happened in my day, it soon became this like sacred meeting I would have every night with my journal of where I would talk about the day, but I would also talk about how I was feeling about the day. And then I started talking about how I was feeling in general. And then I started talking about how I was thinking about the future and the ideas I had. And then I got to vent on the things that I was worried about. And then I got to talk about, you know, just anything and everything and while for so long I had felt pressured and stuck and forced to be someone I wasn't, this journaling container gave me such an opportunity for the first time to be honest with myself about everything. Be, I was honest about my hopes, my fears, my insecurities, my anxieties, what I wanted in the future, what I didn't want, my options. And if my mind was like this melting pot, this knot, it felt like my knot was starting to get untied. It felt like I would end those journaling sessions just feeling so light and so at ease and so much more trusting and just like, it's okay, it's okay, I could breathe after those journaling sessions. And while you know the psychedelics really opened me up to a new way of thinking and living, 
and the books gave me the words that I'd always been looking for. And the meditation really helped me just connect back to that center of calm. It was like the journaling just took all that. And if it was just all these ingredients, the journaling just made sense of it all. And the journaling was where I really started to integrate all this shit I was going through. And I was able to reflect on the lessons I was learning and really start to like, it's like you download systems onto your computer. And I finally was pressing install. Like journaling was me pressing install on all these programs I had been learning, all the downloads I was getting, all the lessons I was learning from the people I was meeting, from the books I was reading, from the meditation insights, like it all came together in journaling. And so I was heading back from Europe, still unsure about what I would do with my career, but feeling a little more trusting because of this just amazing experience I had in Europe. If I wasn't a spiritual person before Europe, I came home from Europe so spiritual because I had felt what it felt like to be led. I was following my intuition I was following the advice from all the books I was reading that like there is this wiser part of you that's connected to everything else outside of you and that you just have to find a way to connect with that inner voice with yourself and let that lead to and let that lead you to everything you want. And I was putting all that to the test in Spain and it fucking was just blowing my mind. I read The Alchemist, you know, if you follow me, you know I love The Alchemist. Like there was all these pieces clicking into place and journaling helped me see it. And so I came home unsure about what I would do with my career, completely lost. I, I took some job interviews and I was just like, for all of them, I got to the last step. They were like, all right, we're gonna hire you. And I would always say, you know, sorry, I'm not gonna do it. And I just think it was this part of me that was like screaming, no, don't do it. Don't fucking do it. Like don't sell your soul to this cubicle for this insurance firm that you don't give a fuck about and so I still didn't know what to do but on my road trip before my Europe trip so I'm going back in time a little bit I visited a friend at Stanford and me and him you know we smoked a joint and we went skateboarding around the uh, the campus and I remember on that trip I pulled out my phone to film him because he looked really cool like skating down the trees and I was a little high and I was like this looks cool And I remember being like, I had this energy return back to me. And I had this like enthusiasm, like this part of me was screaming, yes, like yes, when I started filming him. And I have the chills as I say this, because I was reading spiritual books at the time. And I remember being really interested in this idea that that part of you, that wisdom within you knows more than you know. It's wiser than you. It's guiding you. And our jobs is to learn to listen to that guidance within because it is directing us towards everything we've ever wanted. And the way I like to think about that was like, you have yes energy and you have no energy. And that no energy feels contractive. It feels like you're stuck. It feels sticky. But that yes energy is like light and positive. And it's like the little kid in you just lights up. And it's like, fuck yeah, yes. And that's guidance. That yes and no energy is guidance. And when I started filming my friend, I had this just wave of yes energy. And I rem- it was the first time in maybe six years I had remembered like viscerally, like, oh yeah, I used to love to make videos. I used to love to make videos. And so I took those clips of us skateboarding and I edited a little video. And I remember thinking, wow, like even though it's been so long, I can still, 
make a video that's pretty cool. And I sent it to my buddy and he shared it and like was so, and he just gave me all the validation and affirmation that this is a sick video, dude. Um, and I remember that in the back of my head, I, I just wondered like, could I pursue this? Could this be like my first thing that I try? And so I came back from Europe, came back from Europe, not knowing what I would do in my career. I took all those job interviews. I said, fuck that. And I still didn't know what to do. And then through journaling, I realized like, there was this part of me that was just like, take this step with video. Like you don't know what it's going to look like, but just try to like, try to finagle your way into selling videos for businesses. I'm, I'm sure you can figure something out. And so through journaling, I realized like, that's what my heart wanted to do. That's the, that's the path that to me didn't feel soul sucking. I always knew I wanted to be self-employed and free. I just didn't know how to get there. And this felt like a step in that direction. And so I tried, I tried, I just got, I had an iPhone and I just tried to make videos and I tried to get good at it. And I got a part-time job as a bus boy. I was a part-time, um, like event bartender. I was doing whatever I could do on the side. I was doing all these nasty, dirty jobs so that I could continue to pursue this like more creative path. And I was having so much fun reawakening that creative side of myself. And I started to get better. I was, <laughs> I first started selling videos for like, I would st- I would do like, you know, a week's worth of work for $100. And I was so stoked. It felt like getting away with murder. The fact that I could do something that I enjoyed and get paid for it. Like, this is crazy. And so I just continued to pursue that. I continued to be a busboy. Um, I lived at my parents for much longer than I had wanted to. But I continued to do these practices. I continued to talk myself through it. I continued to find guidance within books, podcasts. And I, and I would alchemize and put that into something that could actually help my life today through journaling. Journaling was the thing to piece it all together, to make sense of it all, and to give me direction. And so I went from charging, you know, 100 bucks for a week's worth of work to, you know, charging $1,000 for a day's worth of work. And that was my transformation in that career path. And not only did I go from like charging dirt nothing to charging really good rates for my work and for my craft, but I went from working with small town spas that do Botox and landscape companies. Like I would take any job I could and I hated working with these people, but I thought at least I'm getting paid and at least I'm getting better at what I do. I went from that to working with clients that I had once considered my heroes, like my idols. I was reading books and listening to podcasts and the people I would listen to or read soon became my clients. I got to blend my passions of video and personal development and psychology and I got to put them into one and I got to work with these people and I got to charge really good prices for it. And I remember feeling like just so grateful because I wasn't working a busboy job anymore. I wasn't a bartender for some wedding company on the side. I wasn't working from for some shitty spa that does Botox for people. Having some foreign, you know, owner yell at me in a language that I couldn't understand. I'm working with people that I love learning from and being around. I got to be in the room with Tony Robbins. I got to work with Aaron Alexander, who hosted one of my favorite podcasts. I got to meet people like Chuck Liddell and Aubrey Marcus and Ben Greenfield. I get to work with Max Lugavere, who's a multi best-selling author like 
I just feel so grateful that I got there. <clears throat> and that's where I still am today is working with some of these people in this in a different capacity now, but within the same line of work. But that was my journey. I went from being so lost and so directionless and depressed because I didn't know how to start to just really starting by going deep internally and, and starting with the spiritual, starting with the emotional, starting with my psychology. And from that place, I just learned to take it step by step by step. I started to follow one breadcrumb at a time, one thing at a time. And within that storyline, I started podcasting. And I'm not going to go back and tell that whole story, but podcasting was one of those breadcrumbs. It was one of those intuitive nudges. It was one of those spiritual things that it was just like, do this, do this. And I, I was scared, but I did it. Like I said at the start of the podcast, it took me a while, but I did it. And that was what actually led to me meeting some of the people that would become my future clients that would introduce me to other clients. And before I knew it, I was in the room with people like Tony Robbins. And that is my journey. And so, you know, I'm here today and there's so much more I could tell you about, you know, my other, I went to Columbia. I've had relationships that have taught me a lot. I've continued to explore with the world of psychedelics. I lived in my van for a little bit before I could afford a real rent. And so I've learned a lot and I've applied a lot and I've tried a lot and I've tested a lot. And I tell this story, perhaps maybe it resonates with you, but also just to make sense and meaning of like, this is why I do the work I do. This is why I spread the message I do is because fucking I was so lost. I had so much pressure on myself. I had no outlet for all the things I was experiencing, all the the little traumas I was experiencing in my home life, I had no outlets for this and I started to do things that I would soon regret. I started to feel shame about my party lifestyle and I was living with this shame and guilt and regret and these secrets that lived within me and I had no way to, to reflect or decompress or analyze or or heal those parts of myself. And and then I went through this life living like I couldn't be authentic, like I couldn't be myself. I went through this life not even knowing who I was, not knowing who that self I could be was. And so I just molded myself to any surroundings I was in, no matter how toxic, no matter how many drugs or alcohol were around, I was just happy to be accepted, even if I was being accepted as someone I wasn't. And then I felt the pain of feeling so lost and so directionless, like, there doesn't feel like there's a path out here that's for me. There doesn't feel like there's a path that is right for me. I don't feel like I fit and belong here. And so that was my pain and that was my struggle. And I don't say that to like, oh, poor me, because we all go through shit. We all have dysfunctional families. We all have really hard trauma that we've been through. And it's all about like, how do we remember who we are through that? How do we, from that place, find what we need? How do we as Rumi says, seek the wisdom that unties your knot and de and follow the path that demands your whole being. But it's like, how the fuck do we do that? And so I'm so grateful for my past and for my pain because it led to me being super uh, curious. How can I find a path for me? How can I feel better about myself? And through all this, I found what I call like my medicine. I found what I needed. And while the psychedelics were the thing that opened the door for me and like showed me this spiritual creative life that I had been looking away from for so long. It was like my daily practices that kept me anchored and grounded in the in that. And like 
those were the things that actually made the difference in my life. You know, psychedelics or travel, like those are great experiences to have and they're so important and they can change you forever. But it's like, what are you doing every single day that is moving you in the direction you want to move in? What are you doing every single day to nurture yourself, to be honest with yourself, to sit with yourself, to heal yourself? That's what Max needed. And I look back and I can see how big of a role, you know, things like journaling played in my life, meditation. These things were what I've always needed. It was what relieved the pressure from me. It's where I could be honest with myself. When I didn't have anybody that got me or understood me, at least my journal could help me objectify what I was going through. I became my own mentor in a way. I had this direct guide this direct channel to my higher self through journaling. I started to be able to objectify everything I was going through. I was able to notice my guidance and the signs, like where was I being led? Journaling was where I found where I'm being led. Journaling <clears throat> is where I got to really know myself. And, you know, not just for an afternoon or a day, but like day in and day out, I got to know myself. And when you know yourself and you know who you are and what, what you want, what you don't want, life becomes a little more simpler. And in that process of finding my authentic career path that I felt like was going to nurture me and my spirit, I didn't know how to fucking get there. And so journaling was my soundboard. Like every day when I was frustrated, I had support in my journal and I had ways to think about things. And I became obsessed with this process of reflection and refining and just one step at a time, just one step at a time. And I don't think I would have been able to pursue a path that was authentic and you know unconventional had I not had this tool. And so that's my story. And um, two things I want to wrap with is <clears throat> if you have the time and if you feel called, I can't recommend enough the process of sitting down and articulating to yourself in your journal your story. Like I covered, I've been talking for an hour straight <laughs> and this doesn't even begin to cover a lot of the details that I went into detail about in my journal. I literally wrote for two hours straight and I thought it would be like a 10 minute thing and it just was like something else took over and I was channeling and there's so much data to prove that writing in a stream of consciousness, consciousness way, which means just writing without filter, especially about your story and what you've been through and then trying to make sense of it to yourself it is healing your psyche. The parts of yourself that have been wounded will begin to feel healed. Where you felt heavy, you will feel lighter. And that's what was the case for me in writing my story to myself. I got to feel to a new extent the level of pressure I felt. The level I'd always known I lived with a lot of shame and guilt about my party phase. I always kept that part of me kind of secretive. But in writing this out to myself, I got to see to a whole new extent, like, holy fuck, man, like, since you were 14, all the pressure I had on myself to be someone, to become someone, to live up to this potential, all the while to be the peacekeeper in my family. And so not to regress, but just to say, like, I made meaning and I've, and I knew all this and I've told myself the story, but it is just so healing. And so if this feels like something that would be healing for you, I think I would just say to you. The world needs you. The world needs your story, even the parts of your story that you find hard to love. I would offer there are parts of your story that 
so many people resonate with. And if you can sit with yourself and articulate to yourself what you've been through, you will begin to move in the world in a way that shows that you are not the victim to your story, but you are the hero to your story. You are not someone who is, you know, broken because of what happened to them. You are someone who is strong because of what has happened to you. And that's the way I'm viewing my story. I'm not trying to victimize myself. I don't want any pity. I love my story and I'm so grateful for my story. And I know there will be more difficulty that will continue to shape me into the person I'm supposed to become. But yeah, that's my invitation to you. Secondly, I have an announcement, like I said. First off, thank you for listening if you've made it all the way through. Um, This has been very healing for me, very lethargic and very beautiful. So thank you for listening. I have a course coming out. The next podcast episode will go into depth about the course. I am so excited about this. This is the medicine I needed. This is the medicine I wished I had. Uh, This is what I needed when I was lost and directionless. This is what I needed when I wanted clarity, when I felt lost and stuck and apathetic and depressed and anxious. This is the tool that I have made. It is the first iteration of my self-inquiry and reflection course designed to help you find clarity and direction. It is the byproduct, the accumulation, the alchemization of the hundreds of books I've read on personal development, spirituality, productivity, mindset, psychology. It is the byproduct of all that I've learned from mentors and teachers, and it's the byproduct of all that I've learned from my clients, some of the best personal development minds in the world. I got to work directly with them. I got to spend time with them day in and day out. And it's the byproduct of just doing this work on myself, like day in, day out, testing, experimenting, trial, error. I've taken the reflection and self-inquiry process and tried to make it super simple because I love things that are simple. I think simple things are the most wise and elegant, so I tried my best to make this simple, actionable, and usable. I tried to make what I needed when I was lost, directionless, without much hope, not really sure who I was, not really sure what I wanted to bring or do to the world, or not really sure how to go about what I knew I wanted. This is the course I wish I had, and so... If you're listening to this, if you've made it all the way through, reach out to me and ask for a link. Uh, if there is an episode 101 out by the time you've listened to this, check that out. That will go into more depth about the course. This is the most proud. I've never been more proud about a product. You know, I haven't really sold anything to this audience. So I'm really excited about this. I'm really proud of this. The cool thing is it will continue to evolve. This is the first iteration. And once you buy this, you have access to it forever. I'm going to continue to add sections to it. Um, I'm going to continue to add material to it. But if I never touched it again, if I just left it, it at, left it as is, I would be very proud of it. And truly, I say that with my heart. This came from the heart. And so if you're called to check that out, it will be half off for a couple of weeks and then we'll go to full price. But still, I don't think it will ever be as cheap as it is now because I'm always going to be adding to this. Uh, And it's only going to become more valuable. So check it out if you feel called to. Regardless, thank you for listening to this podcast. I know this was a long-winded Max talking. My voice is starting to get hoarse. I need to get some water. (laughs) I so appreciate you guys. Seriously, thank you so much for being here. Whether you're here as your first time listening or if you've been with me for 100 episodes, I so appreciate you. I love you. 
Your story is beautiful. Thank you for listening and holding space for me while I tell my story. Uh, And I'm excited to continue to do this dance with you guys for the next 100 episodes. Let's get it. It's going to be sick. Okay. Thank you for listening to Looking Up. I'll see you on the next episode.